Today's scripture is from 1 Kings, chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Then Solomon assembled the elders of the Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all of the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all of the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all of the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from the outside. And there they are to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of the stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel. When they came out of the land of Egypt, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the whole house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Well, forgive me this morning, I'm going to be a low-energy preacher, hence the stool. And thanks for those of you who've been praying for me as I battled mono the last couple months. Appreciate your continued prayers. Doctor said expect at least another month, so very exciting. I'm worn out all, all the time. And thanks uh, to the elders and to you all for your trust in having me preach more. That's honoring and humbling, and uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity, so thank you. As they were looking for next generation as the young preacher, I thought I should get a high schooler's disease. <laughs> so that was a strategic decision on my part. I also thought, I thought about wearing uh, slippers this morning to fit the mono. I thought it'd be too matchy with the jacket, so I decided against it. Anyway, as I step into more preaching, I thought I should start as anyone starting a new role should. That is with confession of sin, so here we go. If you've been around Cole for a few years, you know that I did a bunch of work on Revelation a couple years ago. I taught a class and then wrote some guides that essentially amounts to a book. Um, I taught a retreat. We preached through Revelation uh, over a summer, and that was a great experience for me. It was a high point. really enjoyed all the work. And then after preaching through Revelation that summer, that fall, we started to get ready to go to Urbana. Urbana 2018, InterVarsity's huge missions conference back in St. Louis, and ten to 15,000 college students there every year, or every three years. Huge conference, just really a great time. And I got started to get excited because they were teaching Revelation. That was the main text that they were working through uh, in 2018. 
And more than that, uh, a guy I knew in seminary was going to be the main teacher. So a guy, Rene, was the main teacher, a guy I had known who graduated behind me. And as, I, as we got closer to Urbana, I felt myself getting distressed, feeling uh, uncertain and uh, physically not feeling very well. And it was the last night of Urbana. We'd gone through all the teaching, and um, it really had been a powerful time. I'd really appreciated Renee's teaching, and a lot of good stuff has happened, had happened. And my friend Luke Gamble, who was there uh, with me, were like laying in bed, sharing a bed in this uh, hotel. And he, he turns over to me, and he's, he says, just asked, how was it for you to have a guy you knew at seminary, Renee, teaching Revelation on this thing that you'd spent so much time on? And it was, at that moment, it was like God confronted me with myself that I hadn't really figured out before that. He confronted, I was jealous of Renee, like really jealous. And I was discontent with what God had called me to do versus what God had called Renee to do. Where um, Renee was speaking, you know, doing this international conference on Revelation, but I had done the work on Revelation. I had spent a lot of time and energy on Revelation. Why wasn't I given that opportunity? Why was it him? I was jealous. Add jealousy, add to the jealousy the fact that my teaching on Revelation was all about how we shouldn't pursue fame and celebrity. <laughs> so add to the jealousy, shame, right? That I wasn't, my heart believed something different than what my words were. Uh, my heart didn't match my teaching. What do we do when we're confronted with sin like that? When God shows up and like, oh, there you are. <laughs> when we're confronted with our sin, do we continue in sin? Do we double down on sin and dare God to stop us? Or do we submit, confess, and allow God to change us? When God shows up and shows us who we are, are we willing to be changed? Or do we turn from him and pretend that our sin doesn't matter, that we don't need forgiveness, or that God doesn't really care? In our passage today, God shows up to the people of Israel. Temple is built. Solomon is praising God as a gracious God. God's presence fills the temple. The people celebrate. Everything is great. God's grace is available to the people all the time. The question for them is, what are they going to do? Well, are they going to choose this God of grace, or are they going to choose other gods? Are they going to, like, double down on sin? Same question for us. Are we going to choose God, this God who graciously loves us and make his presence available to us, or are we going to choose our sin, choose other gods, and choose our own kingdoms? Let's pray and then jump into 1 Kings 8. Holy God, you are good to us. You really want relationship with us. You are gracious to us when we do not deserve it, which is all the time, but we thank you for your grace. I pray this morning that as we look at 1 Kings 8 together, that you would confront us with yourself, that you would be here with us, and that you would give us wisdom, courage, insight, uh, enabling to follow you, to give up our kingdoms and our sin and our other gods and seek you and you only because you are gracious and good to us. We thank you and we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Over the last couple months, we've been looking at the book of 1 Kings. Uh, we've watched as David died, Solomon became king of all Israel. And the last few weeks, Rod walked us through the building of the temple, the design and building uh, of the temple. Now it's finished, and in 1 Kings 8, Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord. Israel has pulled off this king thing. It's working really well. It's working to the glory of God. It's working to bless the nation, and it's actually working to bless all the nations. Israel's story of the kings is turning out to be a wild success. After chapter 8, the story of the kings turns into a total disaster. Temple dedication in chapter 8, and at the end of 2 Kings, we're in exile. There's no king in Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed. It's a complete mess. People are gone from the land, even. So at the end of 2 Kings, we're still waiting for the one true king. Chapter 8, we're like, this is working out really well. End of 2 Kings, nope, this is a disaster. The passage that we're looking at today is on the dedication of the temple. So a quick outline. First, verses 1 to 11, Solomon has the Ark of the Covenant brought in, and God's glory covers and fills the temple. Solomon then leads the celebration. So this is verses 12 to 66, the whole rest of the chapter, which we're not going to read, all of. But he leads a celebration where he praises God's character. He gives this long prayer that makes up most of the passage, and that's kind of where we'll focus. He gives this blessing over the people, and then there's this two-week-long celebration. So a great celebration. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 to 11. Then we're going to look at verses 31 to 51, which is kind of the heart of Solomon's prayer. And then we're going to look at what happens to this, the temple and the kingship after Solomon. And then we're going to finish by spending some time thinking about Jesus and how he fulfills all of this. Um, and if there's lots of questions that we're not going to get to today. Um, so I, uh, again, always suggest that you take, go take a look at the website at the Growth Group Leader's Guide for this week. Nikki did a great job. A couple of things that I want to highlight in her work was, one, she did a nice job on helping us think about what it means that this takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles, so that's helpful. Um, and then she gets into some political stuff that Solomon's doing here that, again, I just don't have time to get into all that, but uh, really good work. So take a look at the website. So first, God's presence filling the temple. In verses 1 to 11, the story of Kings tells the story of Solomon finally bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. The Ark goes into the Holy of Holies under the wings of the cherubim. And just as a reminder, in the Old Testament, the Ark consistently represents the Lord's presence with his people. It contains the tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them. And as Solomon has the ark brought into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, God shows up in a cloud that fills the temple. Just a quick reminder, the temple, as we've seen and as Rod's been talking about, the temple is this place where God is going to show up. He shows up with his chosen people, Israel, and he wants, uh, Solomon wants, and God uh, agrees to this, is that this is going to be the place where God's name dwells, where God's name can go out to the nation and then to all the nations. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, makes its place, makes its home at the temple. So Solomon has the ark brought in. So the question is, is God going to show up? And in what way is he going to show up? Well, 
it's, uh, the text tells us that it shows up as a cloud. Now, Courtney and I were talking about, like, the images to go up on your screen here today. When we think of God showing up in a cloud, usually what we think of is like a cloud and then God breaks through with sunlight. You know that image? Um, That's not what this text says. It says it's a cloud, and Solomon uses the language of a dark cloud, is the NIV translation. Um, Another translation we might use, and the Hebrew talks about thick darkness or deep darkness. This is a deep, dark cloud, like the one that settles over Sinai when Moses goes up to meet with God. And the people see the dark cloud, and they're like, uh, keep us away from that. That looks terrifying. Moses, you can go up. We're going to stay down here. The presence of the Lord is terrifying. At Sinai, the darkness terrified the people. Again, when God actually shows up and reveals himself, in every case in Scripture— People are terrified of what they're witnessing. God, in his presence, is terrifying to us. We're going to talk more about that. Another thing that God is, is disruptive. When, when Moses was leading the people, and, and Bezalel and Oholiab make the tabernacle and the ark, and they bring the ark into the tabernacle, the cloud fills the tabernacle so that Moses couldn't go in and do his work. And that story is told in Exodus 40. Same thing happens here. They bring the ark in. God's presence fills the temple. And now the priests can't go do their work. You can imagine, like, Solomon's given them these orders. The priests are ready to go do their thing. They bring the ark in. And then Solomon's like, hey, now you can go, like, celebrate, praise God in the, in the holy place and, um, and praise him and rejoice. And the priests try to go in, and they can't even go in because the glory of God has filled the temple. They're just standing around. Hey, God, you got in the way. Now we can't, you know, praise you and rejoice. I had that experience, similar experience this week, where I found God's presence to be disruptive uh, to my own plans. Where, again, because of the mono, I haven't had energy to do a lot of sermon prep. So this week, I think it was Monday this week, I, I got up early and I was like, okay, I've got time to do my sermon prep. Now, early mornings are normally when I spend time with the Lord. And so I got up early. I'm like, all right, I'm going to skip, skip spending time with the Lord. I'm going to go work on my sermon because that's important. And as I came downstairs and sat in my normal place, Jesus was like, hey, just come sit with me for a while. It's like, but God, I got really important things to do for you. Um, don't interrupt me. Uh, and Jesus is like, no, just come sit. And in that time, so this week I've done a lot of just sitting with Jesus. And in that time, he's been taking me on a journey. And I don't know where the journey goes yet. I know what I do think that I know is it has something to do with my own jealousy and shame that I shared earlier. And it's got something to do with campfires. I'm not sure what that means, uh, but there it is. The reality is when God shows up, it's terrifying and it's disruptive to us. I have work to do, Lord. Work for your kingdom. Just let me do my work. No, it's disruptive. The other thing, terrifying, disruptive, and it changes us. So like, remember when Moses would go in the tabernacle, he'd come out and his face is glowing. And I expect that God is changing me as I sit with him. 
But it's, again, it's terrifying, disruptive, and it's going to change us when God shows up. God wants to be with us, though. Like, he really, really wants to be with us. He wants to be with us so much that he's willing to limit himself. He puts his name on a temple. Like, that's a major downsizing move for God. Heavenly throne room to Solomon. I mean, Solomon's temple is great, but, like, compared to the heavenly throne room, that's a major step down. But God chooses to allow his name and presence to have a home in this temple because God wants us more than he wants a great dwelling place. He wants relationship with us more than he wants gold and all the stuff. All this says to me that the Old Testament God is really a God of grace and relationship. We see that confirmed in the New Testament, but that's true in the Old Testament also. That's who God is. He's a God of grace and relationship. And his presence on the temple is a gift of grace to the people. As terrifying and disruptive as it is, it's a gift of grace on the people of Israel. The God of the universe wants relationship with his people Israel. The God of the universe wants relationship with you and me. What are we, O Lord, that you should be mindful of us? You should care about us at all. But you've made us a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. How majestic, Lord, is your name in all the earth. Let's turn to Solomon and Solomon's celebration and prayer. By the way, as we come to Solomon, Solomon is this great hero that is fulfilling all of God's promises to this point to the people of Israel. Like, think about it. Solomon functions as this new Adam who is building this new Garden of Eden moment in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, God's presence, guarded by cherubim. You remember the cherubim that guard the Garden of Eden to keep people out. Now they're guarding the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is surrounded by cedar trees that Solomon used to build the temple and pomegranates and beautiful trees decorating uh, the Holy of Holies. This is a Garden of Eden moment. Solomon's the new Adam functioning as uh, uh, building this garden for the Lord. He's the seed of Abraham, who God, remember God promised to Abraham, your people, your seed is going to live in the land and they're going to multiply and there'll be a blessing to the nations. Well, Solomon's fulfilling all of that. They're safe, they're secure in the land that God promised to Abraham. And now Solomon is uh, bringing blessing to nations. He's a new Moses who's led the people to security. He's leading the people with wisdom and justice. He's helping the people to follow Torah. And his temple is the place where God meets with his people in a cloud. Remember, Moses had the cloud. He's literally the son of David, but he's also the promised son of David who's going to build the temple, build a throne that's going to go on forever. He's this priest figure overseeing the sacrifices and praying as the mediator between God and God's people. Solomon's pulled this off. Solomon has fulfilled everything that God promised to the people of Israel. He is the fulfillment of God's promises in chapter 8. And we see that he knows who God is. So in Solomon's words, in verses 12 to 66, let's look at what he, we're not going to look at all of what he says, but just an outline of what he says. He celebrates God's presence and character as a promise keeper in verses 12 to 24 and then 62 to 66. He offers this prayer 
and the prayer is focused on hear us when we pray and forgive us, O Lord. Verses 25 to 30 and then 52 to 53. And then he focuses on these seven things that people will come and pray at the temple in 31 to 51. And these ideas are based on the Torah, on the Exodus and on Deuteronomy 28, where God gives the curses uh, to the people of Israel. Look, you're going to do all this stuff and it's going to go badly for you. These are the things that Solomon is asking the people to pray about and asking God to forgive for. So just real quick, here are the seven prayer petitions, verses 31 to 51. If a neighbor wrongs a neighbor and somebody comes to pray for justice at the temple, Lord, give us justice. And if we get defeated in battle and we come to pray to you at the temple, Lord, forgive us. And if there's no rain because we've sinned and we come to pray to you at the temple, Lord, forgive us and send rain. And if we face plague and famine and we come to pray to you at the temple, God, forgive us and act for us. And if a foreigner comes to pray, God, hear and act for the foreigner. And if we're off to war and we come to pray before we go to war, Lord, act with justice. And when we sin and you send us into exile, God, and we come to pray, and we just pray toward the temple because we'll be in exile, we'll be far away, God, will you hear us and forgive? You can hear all the forgiveness language. Lord, forgive our sins. Like, Solomon knows who God is. God is a gracious God. Sin is no object to God. God will forgive sin. So to characterize and sum up that prayer, Lord, if things go badly because we've sinned and we come to the temple to pray, God, forgive us at the temple because you are gracious. Again, Solomon knows this God. Solomon knows the God that we know. A God of grace and compassion. A God who forgives sin. And God will forgive us for anything. We just have to turn to him to come and pray to him. God loves his people. He wants to be near to us. So when we draw near to him, God will hear and work for our good. Solomon in this moment, this is the great moment in all of Israelite religious history. The great moment. This is the high point of the Old Testament. God has fulfilled basically all of his promises. Israel is firmly in the land. Solomon is turning out to be a king like David or even better than David, who follows God and rules with wisdom and justice. The people, First Kings tells us, are wealthy and satisfied. The nations are coming to worship the Lord. The temple is amazing. If the story of God's interactions with Israel ended right here, if this was the last chapter of the Hebrew scriptures, this would be a great ending. It'd all be fulfilled. It'd be perfect. So let's just wrap it up. They all lived happily ever after. This is the end. We can close the book and go home. Unfortunately, 1 Kings 8 is not the end. 1 Kings 9, we'll look at that next week, begins the long road to exile. For the next couple of minutes, I just want to point us forward to how this looks. Remember, in chapter 8, the ark is brought into the temple. God shows up. Solomon prays that God will forgive the people because God is gracious and faithful. So the ark, what happens to the ark after this chapter? It never shows up again. There's one mention of the ark in the rest of the Old Testament after this point, And that mention brings up more questions and answers. The ark disappears. The people forget about the presence of God or don't care or something. 
What about the temple? What happens to the temple after this in the book of, books of Kings? Well, more kings go into the temple to steal gold out of the temple to pay off foreign rulers than go into the temple to pray. Let me repeat that. More kings are mentioned going into the temple to steal gold to pay off foreign rulers than go into the temple to pray after this chapter. God's people are more interested in stealing gold from God than they are in praying to God. God is a God who answers prayers. If the kings will just come to the temple to pray, they just don't come to the temple to pray. Every time they do, God answers their prayers. All three times in the rest of the books of Kings, three of the kings go into the temple with good intentions. Over the next 400 years, Solomon starts this thing, starts to slide away from the Lord. In the next chapter, he ends his life worshiping other gods. We've seen this already. Rod mentioned this last week and did a good job pointing this out, how Solomon spends a bunch more time on his palace than he spends building the temple. Well, we see over the next few chapters, it gets worse. Solomon's allegiances become clear. He's more interested in, in himself than he's interested in God. So the kings fail to worship the Lord. They fail to pray to him, and Yahweh follows through on what he says he's going to do. The people, as God promised, as Moses and Solomon predicted, end up defeated by foreign armies and end up in exile in Babylon. If this, 1 Kings 8, is the high point in Israel's worship, because God descends, he makes his presence on the temple, brings his presence to the temple, the low point in Israelite history is Ezekiel 10 and 11, where God's presence goes up from the temple and goes away. That's the most tragic moment in the Old Testament. God has left the temple. He's gone. Let me just say, the temple gets destroyed by the Babylonians right after Ezekiel's vision. The temple is rebuilt later, and much later, Herod the Great adds on to make it a pretty spectacular-looking temple. But the presence of the Lord does not return to the temple through the entire Old Testament. The ark's gone, the temple's gone, God's presence is gone. So the story of the kings is a tragedy. But why does it turn out that way? It didn't have to be that way. For me, what I've been wrestling with is why don't we just confess? Why don't we turn to God? When we sin and God shows up and confronts us with our sin, why don't we turn to him? The king sure didn't. So some of you, I've asked some of you to give me some feedback. Some of you gave me some helpful feedback on this. A key reason for us is pride. We don't want to admit that we've done things wrong because we think we're so good or something. Another is self-defense. Studies actually tell us that when we're headed a direction, when we believe something to be true or we've done something, and somebody confronts us with the facts, true facts, that tell us that we believe wrongly or we've, what we've done is wrong, facts do not make us change our minds. To be confronted with facts, most people most of the time will not change their minds. It's kind of the shocking thing about human beings. When the facts get in the way, we just reject the facts. That's most of us most of the time. 
So self-defense, we're good at defending ourselves, defending our beliefs and our behavior. That's just human being, human behavior. So pride, self-defense. Another reason is um, if we admit guilt or confess sin, then that feels like showing weakness. It feels like shaming ourselves. So when we make ourselves look bad um, by admitting to do something bad, uh, we don't like that feeling, so we shift the blame. We blame somebody else, which is, of course, as old as the Garden of Eden. Sometimes we don't admit sin because we don't really believe that God can forgive what I've done. Yeah, God forgives sin in general, but what I did was too bad. God can't forgive what I did. So pride, self-defense, shame, blame, we don't really believe God. These are all some of the reasons we don't turn back to God, even when we know he says he will forgive us. Bible Project, and if you don't know the Bible Project, I suggest you look it up on Google. Um, Their videos, podcasts, their work is really, really amazing work, making the Bible accessible to us today. Um, In their, I was listening to one of their podcasts this week, and they helped me to sum up one of the reasons, at least, why we don't turn back to God when we sin. And one of of those reasons is um, once we've sinned and taken control of our lives— To confess and enter back into God's presence is no longer a gift to us. Grace is no longer a gift. It's a threat. Because again, God is terrifying, disruptive, and transformational. He's going to change us. So when I like my kingdoms, to accept God's grace means giving up my kingdoms. It's a threat to me and my kingdoms. God's grace is a threat The gifts of God, the presence of God become a threat to us. So then what are we going to do? Are we going to confess and submit or maintain our own kingdoms? The books of the kings tell the story of how Israel went from this golden age moment, 1 Kings 8, to exile. Where there is no king in Jerusalem, the people are removed from the land, the temple's been destroyed, Most of the people have been carried out. How did they get there? It wasn't just sin. Again, God accounts for sin. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us. It's not just sin. The problem is this. People sinned, and then they turned to other gods. We look to other resources. We want to avoid the one true God. That's the problem. Solomon says, you, we could pray and you will forgive. Yes, he will forgive if we'll only pray. That's the thing that keeps us out of God's presence. God will forgive anything, but he won't make us choose him. So again, when Mary gives birth to a baby boy in Bethlehem, over 900 years after Solomon dedicates the temple, the people of Israel are back in Jerusalem There is a temple, they're under Roman control, and God's presence has not entered the temple complex in 600 years. The first time the presence of God comes back into the temple is when Mary and Joseph bring an eight-day-old baby Jesus into the temple. And Simeon and Anna, if you remember the story, Simeon and Anna know what they're witnessing. Simeon goes, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. 
the presence of God is back. And Anna can't stop telling everyone she sees about this baby. Baby, God's presence is back. Each of the New Testament Gospels, and this is the story of Jesus, each of the New Testament Gospels, but especially John maybe, tell the story of Jesus and the temple in the hearts of the nation of Israel. Jesus is God's presence with the people, but the people want to keep the temple as it is. We know, like, there's a bunch of story about this, but maybe the most uh, significant moment. Do you remember Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin? Their main accusation against Jesus is that Jesus has threatened the temple. They can't get that accusation to stick, but do you remember what accusation does stick? Is that Jesus confesses to being the presence of God in their presence. That's when they go, blasphemy, let's crucify this guy. The people don't want the real God. The people want the temple apparatus, the leadership of the temple as they know it. When God shows up, he's a threat to them. He's disruptive, he's terrifying, and he's a threat to their way of life. The story of Jesus climaxes, of course, with his death and resurrection, with his arms spread wide in welcome to anyone who will just come and kneel before him as king and lord. We don't have to get ourselves cleaned up. We don't have to do the right things. We just have to come to Jesus, confess, and accept his forgiveness. We don't have to do anything to come into his presence. But in fact, I think it works the other way. You remember what happens right as Jesus breathes his last? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all describe the same thing. Jesus breathes his last, and their attention immediately turns to what? To the temple. They say, the veil separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place has now been torn in two. We have access to the Holy of Holies before God. Yes, but it's more than that. We don't just have access to the Holy of Holies. Again, the Bible Project guys put me onto this. What, when the, the tearing of the veil signifies God is no longer contained in the Holy of Holies. God has broken out of the temple. God is making himself available and present to us wherever we are. In Jesus, he's coming to get us. The Holy Spirit is after you and me. He really wants to be with us. The disruptive, transforming, terrifying presence of God is no longer contained in a temple. It's now out there. God is coming after us because he really wants us. In Jesus' death and resurrection, and then at the spread of the good news that Jesus is Lord, the Lord is bringing his presence near to all nations, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He is present with us here. There's a lot more to say. I'm going to skip some of it. But one of the things I want to say is, remember pride, self-defense, shame, these things that keep us from God? Remember Jesus entered all of those. He is the answer to all of those. Instead of pride, Jesus is humility. Instead of self-defense, Jesus is self-sacrifice. Instead of us bearing our shame, Jesus bears our shame, takes it on himself by going to the cross for us. We go on and on. Jesus is Israel stepping in to ask God to forgive. 
Jesus is God's presence with God's people, forgiving, making things right, acting for the sake of the nation. Jesus is the new temple, mediating the presence of God to the nation and to all nations. Jesus is the messianic king, the king who is greater than David and Solomon, establishing a kingdom that will rule all nations and will go on to eternity. Jesus is the victorious king who crushes the serpent's head. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who obeys God with faith and blesses all the nations. Jesus is the true king, the one who is truly worthy of our worship and our adoration because he has conquered sin and death. He rules over all the rulers of this world because of his death on a Roman cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is king. Amen and hallelujah. God really, really wants to dwell with his people. He really, really, really wants you and me. The kings forgot the temple. But God is slow to anger and abundant with love for us. He wants to be with his people. That's why he created us. He wants you and me. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. Question for us is this. Do we want God? Are we ready to face into the terrifying, disruptive, transformative presence of God? God invites us into his presence. He even brings his presence near to us. But when we enter his presence, we will die to ourselves. That will happen to us. We enter into death with Christ to be remade, to rise again, to be renewed as Jesus' people. But for most of us, most of the time, it's more terrifying to enter God's presence than it would be to die in sin and shame. But the barrier is on our side. It's not on God's. He is after us. He will do anything to be near us because he is a gracious, loving God. For God's part, God sent Jesus to seek and save those of us who are lost, which is all of us. Jesus came and defeated the sin that enslaves us. He overcame the powers that rule over us, and by his stripes, we are healed. And then he rose again to defeat death. This morning, I invite you to run to Jesus. Run to the Father who is waiting for us with open arms, ready to overwhelm us with his grace and goodness, to remake us as he always intended us to be. Run to the Father. He will never turn you away. And in his grace, he welcomes sinners covered in shame and jealousy and sadness and the mess of our broken kingdoms. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise. You are Lord. You have made a way available to us, to the Father, and we are astounded by what you've accomplished. Thank you for being the presence of God among us. We ask that you would continue your work. And as we run to you today, Jesus, we thank you that you accept us. You welcome us. You want relationship with us. We love you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.